Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, uh, Tony Barnett is the guy who runs Hope for Youth International. He was the youth pastor years ago uh, after after Kurt and Patty. He was um, at Northwest in Federal Way. Um, really fun guy, really fun guy, and a man of character. And I'm not going to use this guitar pick for the message today, so I'm going to put that there. Um, uh, we, gosh, it was 13 years ago, I think now, we had an exchange student with this program, with his organization, and have connections now in Kenya, because because Kevin was our exchange student. He was awesome. So it's a, it's a really cool experience, um, and I encourage you to do that. And it was Kyrgyzstan and the Netherlands are, are, the, are the places these two students are from. Um, they're all awesome kids. So you don't get into these programs unless unless you've got a good track record. Um, and so it's it's a good deal. I encourage you to check it out. Come talk to me afterwards. I'll give you the information. All right. All right. So we are in the book of Mark still. Somebody say still. We're only halfway through chapter 11. <laughs> this is, I think, message number 21 in the in the series. and. Uh, having a good time. So get out your, your Bibles or your devices. Last week was Independence Day, and we were uh, in Mark, the beginning of Mark chapter 11 is Palm Sunday, where Jesus has his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we looked at that compared to our Independence Day and, and what they thought might be their Independence Day. Um, uh, but it turned out to be a little different than what they thought. Jesus came into Jerusalem and he announced that he was, in fact, the Messiah they were waiting for. And he was there to deliver his people, um, but he was going to do it differently than what they thought. Um, He had received the praise and the honor of the people. And this was important, even though they were mistaken about what he was going to do. They thought he was coming in to do a certain thing and he was doing something else, but he still acknowledged and still received their praise, and and their reception of him was key to what he was doing, even though they didn't understand. And that was, for me, the most comforting, the most encouraging part of that message was that even if you don't understand what God is doing, if you will let him in, he will still do it without your understanding. (laughs) He doesn't need you to have all the nuts and bolts figured out to work in your life. You just have to let him in and yield to him. So Jesus came into Jerusalem amidst the shouts of praise and Hosanna and went to Temple Mount and looked around in the, in the temple area and then turned around and left. He went back out the two miles to Bethany where he was staying and stayed the night because it was late. And that was it. It was probably at Lazarus and Martha and Mary's home. And that's where we pick up the next day. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, start in verse 12. You got your Bibles. Here we go. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he, Jesus, became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying 
and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them to teach and say to them, it is, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they, Jesus and his disciples, would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things which you, which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that the, your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. That's a big chunk of stuff right there. And, and uh, we're going we're gonna to get all the way through it. We're going to do it. We're going to get all the way through it. Let's talk for a moment about fig trees. This is a fig, a little green fig. On the inside, they tend to be uh, red and sweet and nourishing. Fig trees um, are, there's a lot of fig trees, and they're, they're grown in orchards and, and places intentionally. They're not just wild all the time. You find them where they want to harvest the fruit. Fig trees put out fruit about the same time they put out leaves for the first batch. They usually do two crops of figs in a, in a single year. The first one comes out about the same time as the leaves, and the leaves don't open until you can actually see the fruit. The fruit is there. If you ever saw a fig tree with leaves but not fruit at this time of year, um, there would be something wrong with that fig tree. It should have figs on it. This would be the first crop at this time of year. This is so because this is just before Easter. This is Holy Week right here. This is um, March, April. And so this will be the first crop of the year. A fig tree will put out a crop um, on last year's growth, and it comes out the same time as the leaves. So the, it'll put out one crop from last year uh, on, the, on the branches that were grown last year, and then the leaves, and then with the new energy and strength from those leaves, grow more and then put out a second crop later in the year. That's, that's the basic life cycle of fig tree. <laughs> I have this fig for a fun reason. I, um, I did not go buy one. I didn't, I didn't uh, find one in the kitchen pantry. We don't normally have figs like this at our house. Um, I was riding in a pickup truck with a couple friends. We were taking some stuff to the dump, working on the project. And as we were traveling, I was telling them about this piece of scripture that we're studying today and just kind of going through the, the life cycle of a fig tree. And, and, uh, 
And then we got to the dump. We were unloading, and the truck next to us pulls out. And underneath where he was parked was a single fig. Underneath the truck at the dump. (laughs) I'm not going to eat this. (laughs) But it was kind of cool. I was like, a fig? Really? Okay. That's strange. But Holy Spirit, I will take that as a sign from you that I'm on the right track and we're going to keep... Keep going. I, there's a F.F. Uh, F. Bruce is a church historian and um, theologian and, and commentator. He writes, um, there are different kinds of fig trees. And there's another fig tree that where the leaves appear about the end of March. And they are accompanied by a different kind of fig. It's called a small, uh, I'm going to try and say this because it's Arabic, um, a taksh. T-A-Q-S-H is how we would spell that. They're little knobby things, and they're not anywhere near the size of a a real fig. They're sort of a forerunner to the real figs. And these are eaten by peasants and others who are hungry on the road, and they drop off before the real figs are formed. Um, but But if the leaf appears unaccompanied by those little knobby things, the tagsh, um, then there will be no figs that year. This was, they think that maybe they're used for the pollination of the fruit or something, but there will be no figs if those guys aren't there. So it was evident to our Lord when he turned aside to see if there was any of these touch on the fig tree to assuage his hunger for the time being. But the absence of those things meant there would be no figs that year. For all its green leaves and foliage, it was a fruitless and a hopeless tree. All right, so this is a lot of talking about figs and fig trees, and most of you don't really get that much into agriculture. So um, what is Jesus saying? What's going on here? Um, Jesus came to find fruit as the Messiah. He came to find fruit in Israel, in the church that was Judaism but he found none. Up to this point, we've seen him interact with the, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders a number of times, and it's never gone well for them. <laughs> He's never really been pleased with what's going on. Figs were designed to be good for people. Fig trees were designed to produce fruit for people and be sweet and wholesome, along with all the other vegetation In the garden, when it was first created, it was blessed and commanded to reproduce. And I'm going to put this down so I quit fiddling with it. There we go. And it reflects an aspect of who the creator is and how he provides, if it does what it's created to do. If it produced fruit, bless you. In the Old Testament, Israel is likened several times to a fig tree. And usually not in a good sense. It's usually when there's a rebuke coming (laughs) and the Lord says, you were supposed to do this and you're not producing the fruit that you're supposed to produce. Now, what would Messiah be expecting of Israel when he shows up? Israel was always supposed to be a nation of priests. They were called by God, set apart pulled from other people and sanctified, and and they were called a nation of priests. They were supposed to be the avenue that all the other nations of the world came to God through. 
They were supposed to be the ones that revealed who Yahweh was to the rest of the world. Their entire nation, not just the Levites, the entire nation was to be priests to the world, to draw all people to their, their Lord, their God. That's, that was their assignment. That's what they were supposed to do. And then within the nation, the Levites, the priests, and, and all that, um, all the religious system and the system of worship was to encourage and to edify and to build up the nation as a whole to do that, kind of like the church today. Maybe somebody in professional ministry, somebody that gets paid to do ministry would be like a Levite, or somebody that leads from the front would be a Levite, equipping and encouraging the rest of the body to actually be the priests that we're called to be. They were useful and profitable in that they could show the world Yahweh if they were doing what they were supposed to do. The responsibility was the whole nation, but specifically the Levites, the keepers of the tabernacle and temple worship systems. So Jesus took issue with those ones specifically, the nation as a whole, but specifically the religious leaders, the ones who were responsible to teach and instruct the rest of the nation about Yahweh and who he is and what he's like. So when Messiah came, he wanted to find fruit, not just leaves. A little while later, next chapter in Mark, I'm probably going to skip over it when we get there, so I'm just going to lump it in right here. Mark 12, 1 through 9, Jesus tells a parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce that the vine- uh, of the vineyard and from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so, with many others, beating some and killing others, he had one more to send, a beloved son. And he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and give the vineyard to others. If you, if you read this in your Bible, there's um, a, a place in verse 1 where it's all caps. And that means it's a direct quotation of somewhere else. And this quotation here, it says, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. That's all in caps. And it's referring directly to Isaiah chapter 5. And in Isaiah 5, the Lord is rebuking Israel for, for this. This was about Israel. I set you up for success and I came for good fruit and all you gave me was worthless grapes. Now, Jesus telling this parable is speaking in the temple and he's talking to all the religious leaders and anybody that'll listen. And they know Isaiah chapter five and they know what he's talking about. He was making a direct correlation to the religious leaders of Israel, which is why the narrative of the withered fig tree is interrupted by the narrative of Jesus visiting the temple and throwing out the money changers and the merchants. Though they had a fine religious system, 
They had the recognition of Rome and a limited amount of freedom in government. They were missing the key fruits of righteousness. What fruit was he looking for? Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, what does he want from you? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This was the kind of fruit that he was looking for, and he wasn't finding it. He wanted to see hearts to serve. He wanted to see a genuine interest in the things of God and learning more about him, not so that I could know more and be more special, but so that I could teach others what was going on and and lead others to him, to help others see and understand for themselves. So Jesus makes this, this direct correlation with the fig tree and the religious system. Then he goes into the temple and he is filled with a righteous indignation and starts tossing tables and yelling at people. And I like this whole passage right here, both of these things, people say, well, see, this just exhibits, this shows you that Jesus was actually human also and was subject to, you know, being hungry and, and uh, outbursts of anger and that kind of thing. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that this was more calculated than that. Jesus was not just hangry. Now, if it had been me, there's a good chance that that all the yelling and screaming and tossing things around was because I had not eaten breakfast that morning. Um, um, There is no good logical reason why Jesus would have left Bethany, which, by the way, means house of figs. (laughs) Uh, He left Bethany, Lazarus' home, Martha's home, Mary's home. I mean, these people know how to take care of people. He's not going to leave their house having not eaten right? Unless he did it on purpose or unless he was making a point. So, so anyways, that was for free. Uh, so he's on his way. So he, he goes into the temple. Also, he had been there last night. He'd evaluated. He got the lay of the land the night before. So he knows what's in there. He knows what's happening. He goes in there and starts making a mess and starts throwing things around. Um, he's dealing with two major things here. First, the selling of animals and the changing money. And then second, the use of Temple Mount as a shortcut from one side of the city to the other. So first, the animals. Um, It's Passover season. People are going to need to make sacrifices. And if you bought an animal out in the street somewhere or on the way there, there's a good chance that it might not be perfect. It might have blemishes, which makes it not acceptable for a sacrifice in this system. So these ones inside were guaranteed to be spotless and blemish-free, and they had some sweet uh, business deals going on with the leadership where they would get a cut of, of the profit from these animals. They could charge you more because it's in the temple grounds. It's like, <laughs> all right, it's like buying food at the fair, right? Every year we would go to the, the Puyallup Fair, we would stop at Eric's Burgers outside on what is at the northwest corner and we would buy our onion burgers and, and brick of fries and all sorts of goodness out there because you'd pay about a third of the price that you would if you went in the fair, right? And nobody cares if it was spotless. It's a grease bomb. Like, anyways, yeah. that's all. <laughs> Just put ketchup on it. You're fine. 
But that's kind of the financial situation here, right? You get in the temple, you can charge more, you got to pay, you know, your, your share to the religious leaders. They were making a lot of money on this. The other part of this was, was money changing. To, to um, give an offering or to pay your temple tax, it had to be in Hebrew shekels. And most people didn't do a lot of business with Hebrew shekels, so they had the Roman money. Um, there is another, another scripture later on where they say, hey, whose who's inscription is on this? Whose impression is on this? At Caesar's, right? We've got Roman money, and so you got to trade. So the, another opportunity, anybody ever gone on a foreign trip and exchanged money? Do they charge you? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And so that's what was going on right here. They were getting charged for exchanging money to pay, to pay a tax. It was a racket. It was a racket. And Jesus was done with that. Um, the second part was the, was the transporting things from one part of the city to the other part of the city. And using Temple Mount as a shortcut, Scripture says that, that he, was, um, he, he turned over the tables and the seats of the ones selling doves, another kind of offering, and he would not permit anyone to carry anything through. Because what was happening was it was just a shortcut. And that it was defa- it, it was um, making profane, making common the temple grounds. And Jesus said, "No, no, no, no. We've we've missed we've missed the point." And he began to teach them. And I love this about Jesus. If I could come in and start throwing tables and yelling at people, and then start teaching, or I think of my, <laughs> I think of maybe parenting. Right. This is probably not an effective way for me to parent. I, you know, just start yelling at everybody and throwing things around. And it should be this way and this way. By the way, I want you to learn this very important lesson. <laughs> um, probably not going to get the, I mean, they might remember it. <laughs> but maybe not in the best ways. Um, Jesus says, you have made it a den or a cave of thieves, a place where dishonest and exploitive business is taking place. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. This was supposed to be where you brought people to experience God, but instead you're more interested in your prophets and your, your corrupt racket going. Jesus messed them up, cleaned it. And I love that it says that the chief priests and the scribes were, were really angry. They're really upset. They're going to find a way to kill this guy, but they're scared. Like one guy walks in and just owns the place, just owned it. I think that's indicative of the Holy Spirit empowering him to do that. Because <laughs> nobody, not one person is just going to have you know, some kind of charisma where they can control that much space. And be. I mean, I've been on Temple Mount. It's a big place. And, and I mean, what is it, 40 acres? I think it is. Yes, it is. It's like 42 acres of flat space where there's all these, um, there's the colonnades on one side, and there's lots of space for business. And he cleaned it out, kicked them out. That that's enough. And no, you can't take your stuff over there. Walk around, buddy. But he said. Uh-oh. All right. Um, Good idea. It was suggested that they should dig a tunnel. Yes, go under the temple. So the next morning, so he he does this, and then and during this week, Jesus is in the temple during the day, and then he goes home in the evening. So they went home, back to Bethany, seeing Lazarus, and then the next morning they come by and they see the withered fig tree 
and they marvel at the rapid effects of Jesus' words. Peter gets the credit for that one. And then Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them about faith-filled prayer. He says, I'm just going to read these couple verses again. Um, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. That is a pretty broad promise. That is a, is a huge promise. So let's look at what he's saying here. As long as you don't doubt, you could ask for anything you want, and God will give it to you. Is that what he said? Kinda, kinda. But that's not it. That's not the point. Who is he talking to, number one? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. Disciples, by definition, are ones who deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow Jesus. So I can ask for anything. (laughs) I mean, boy, we've all heard this twisted in theology, haven't we? Oh, my goodness. We've heard this twisted and and. You know, we, we have fun names for that kind of theology, the name it, claim it, blab it, and grab it, you know. Um, Jesus is talking specifically to people who have given up everything to be with him. These guys were not the ones that were going to ask for a new fishing boat. These were not the guys who were going to ask for great riches and wealth in this world. These were ones who were with him and trying to accomplish the same things that he was. And to those disciples, Jesus makes his promise. Why? Because their hearts will be in the right place when they ask. And they will not ask out of selfish motives. They are concerned with the kingdom first. So Jesus can make this promise to them. And uh, and basically it's safe. Because if you're not a disciple and you do this, well, we'll get into what James says about that later. And then he goes into forgiveness. He just, this is Holy Week, folks, and he is packing it in here. He is just, every moment counts, and, and he's, he's preaching the whole time. Forgiveness is a fruit of being a disciple. And we, we know that because as a disciple, you're to follow Jesus, you're to emulate Jesus, and Jesus was pretty forgiving. What did he say on the cross as they were putting in the nails? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To forgive is to let go, to give up a debt, to, for, to uh, remit, to keep no longer. And Jesus was showing us a major obstacle in seeing our prayers answered. This is in the context of looking at that fig tree and, and wondering, oh my goodness, that was just done for him, just like that. Unforgiveness is more than an obstacle for unanswered prayer. Unforgiveness stops us from receiving the Father's forgiveness. This is huge. And Jesus just kind of throws us out there and then they move along. But, but you need to forgive people. You need to be able to forgive in order to receive forgiveness. Is that, is that kind of like a, like a works versus grace thing? Is that like I have to do this in order to receive? No, I think that it, and Jesus, the way that he describes it here, this is a condition of the heart. 
if I am full of unforgiveness and bitterness, then I close myself off from receiving. This isn't just I have to check a box saying, okay, I've forgiven this person, and now I can go over here and receive. This is, is there room in my heart for God to pour his love in and his forgiveness in? And if I have filled it with unforgiveness or allowed it to take root, then then there is not room, and I am not in a place where I can receive from the Lord. We, have, we all know somebody. I've got a couple people in mind right now. We all know somebody who is bitter, who um, is, has, they don't know how to forgive. They don't know how to, they don't know how to move on. And everybody who has ever said anything sideways to them is on their blacklist, right? You know, right? So if you, if you think about that heart, there's no place, there's no room for the Lord to say, I forgive you. And that person to say, to, to receive it, right? It's a condition of the heart, and that's a scary place to be found if we are unable to receive forgiveness from the Lord. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground here, a lot of different topics. What are we learning from this today? Because we believe that the Word of God is alive and active. We believe that He will speak to us and work in our hearts and so he's, he's going to do that right now through, through this word. Number one, Jesus expects fruit. He expects it. I, I think if I was to, and I titled this message, Jesus likes fruit. And I'm not talking about fruit versus meat or any kind of dietary restrictions. I'm just saying Jesus likes fruit. He expects it. Now, I'm a gardener. Uh, we've talked about my garden at, at various times, usually about my wars with the squirrels and moles. Um, <clears throat> And cats. <laughs> All right. Something. Anyway, I, uh, I have made mortal enemies with the neighborhood creatures that mess with my garden. Um, that's just the way it is. If you mess with my garden, you should be afraid. Be very afraid. But another big frustration, another big frustration with my garden is when a plant doesn't do what it's supposed to do. <clears throat> I don't expect that my garden will be bigger and more beautiful than everybody else's garden. I don't, there are some in this room that are far better gardeners than I am. But I do expect that when I give my plant the appropriate environment to grow, that it's going to do what it was designed to do. I'm not trying to win a prize at the county fair, but I do expect my plant to bear fruit. I have definitely pulled out plants that stopped growing or that produced no fruit. I have, I've come to that plant. I said, that's it. I'm done. This thing is not working like it's supposed to. In fact, I have a couple blueberry plants right now that are about four or five years old and still that big. And, I, and they produce like three berries a year. I'm just like, something's wrong. <laughs> Seven years. Okay. See, there's scripture there too. Just give me, that's a gardener speaking right there. Give me, give me two more years. If it doesn't produce fruit, then you can burn it down. <laughs> I will confess, I'm about done with those blueberries. I just like I want some. I want something that stinking grows, man. Just like the nation of Israel was chosen to be a nation of priests to the world, the church was created and designed to connect a lost and broken world to their loving Creator. 
That's why the church exists. When Jesus returns, he will be looking for the fruit of relationship with him. Proof that the spirit is work at work in our lives. In Matthew 3, verse 8, John the Baptist says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's talking to the Pharisees here. They want to come and get baptized and have a religious experience. And he said, nope, you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you make your life look like the spirit is at work in you, that you know that you actually know God. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He wouldn't just allow them to do the one-time experience. Our lives should be growing and changing to reflect his all the time. All the time. Nobody wants to be that blueberry bush. (laughs) I mean, if, if my blueberry bushes had feelings, they would be scared that, (laughs) that the gardener was coming for them. And they'd probably be trying to pump out some more berries. I don't know. Our lives should be growing and changing to reflect his. We're his disciples. We're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. This means that our priorities shift to reflect his. And it means that we begin to love people more than we would naturally love people. Some of you are real people persons. Yeah. And, uh, um, and some of you, not so much, but as we, as we get closer to the Lord, as we are impacted by him, as we shift our priorities to reflect his, then we begin to value and see the people around us as the ones that are the target of his love and that we are supposed to draw and connect to him. It means we become more passionate about connecting people to God and introducing them to Jesus Christ. So the first truth in this passage is Jesus expects fruit. He expects it. And it's not unreasonable. The second thing is Jesus is passionate about people being connected to the Father. He was coming into the situation where it was all tangled up in money things and business things and and convenience things. And none of those should ever keep people from worshiping. No one should ever set up barriers to keep people out of worshiping God intentionally or unintentionally. I remember in this, in this prosperity gospel uh, way of thinking, I remember hearing it said that, that you could look at somebody's material possessions and see how much faith they had. Which is false on its face. But also, if I am a a new believer and I hear something like that, how am I going to feel driving to church in my Pinto? Right? Yeah, I'm going to feel like, yeah, this is not, this is, does not look good on me. My, my 81 Honda Civic hatchback with a slip and clutch is not going to cut it in this parking lot. I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else. That, so that becomes, in effect, a barrier for me to worship and engage in the community of God. Money. Possessions should never be a barrier to worship. And Jesus was calling that out as he started tossing things around. No one should set up to make a profit off of other people's worship. 
I'm just going to leave that one alone. We're just going to, I've come close enough to hitting that one. We're just going to move on. Um, I think Jesus might have a thing or two to say to some churches nowadays. But then really, it's always been like that. It really has. From the beginning. Uh, you know, maybe not right away in the early church, but by the time the church was institutionalized by Rome, there was money involved. There was profit to be made, and there was control to be had, and power and influence to be owned. So it's really always been like that. As a church, we ought to do everything in our power to eliminate hindrances and keep things and and eliminate things that keep people from God. Everything we do, everything we don't do, needs to be geared around connecting people to their creator. Um, I, my, in a past life, I was a worship pastor and uh, we were, I was heavily involved in the production of a service and everything that we did from the lighting to, you know, we didn't really do a lot of haze or smoke or anything. And Patty said, amen. Um, <laughs> but, but, but the lighting, the temperature in the room, the volume of things, the mix of things, everything was geared with this in mind. We're connecting people to God. You can, you can go too far. I mean, you can have an amazing electric guitar player. Um, and, and man, there's a ripping solo on this song and he should be, he should be up, but you need to be thinking, all right, does this draw people and connect people to the Lord? Or is it a distraction? Is it keeping people out of worship in a good way or a bad way? Church should never be used as a means to any other end than connecting people to God. So this is kind of wild. We all have our own motivations and our own heart, but some of us come to church for not the right reasons. Has anybody ever seen somebody come to church to find a spouse? Oh, right. Now that's an appropriate place to find a spouse. But if that's your motivation to come there, then you're missing the point. Um, It's not a place to peddle your business, multi-level marketing or otherwise. It's a place to draw close to him and to help others draw close to him as well. Jesus is passionate about people connecting to the Father. But he will also teach us what that looks like and what it doesn't. And it might not be super comfortable if he's correcting us. I don't want Jesus coming into my church tossing tables. I'm just saying. It's not an interaction I would ever want to have from that angle. But Jesus is passionate about connecting people to the Father. The third thing is Jesus wants us to pray big prayers and see big answers. Why? Because you're disciples. And in the context of being a disciple and being about the mission of Jesus, God will move mountains, read impossible situations to help you. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then you and I need to learn how to pray big prayers with the right motives and in the right direction. Listen to James chapter 4, starting in verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Don't, don't. Take it personally, right? Uh, You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. In verse three, listen to this. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There's nothing wrong with a new Mercedes or a nice house, but the prayers that God will answer are the ones that help us accomplish the mission of Jesus, not enrich us personally. That's not what Jesus was talking about in verse 23 and 24 when he said, whatever you ask, believe you have received it and it will be done for you. If he believes, it will be granted to him. This talks about faith, the faith-filled prayer. We've talked about faith a number of times recently where uh, faith is that making space and making room in my heart, in my life, for him to be who he is. It's believing him, trust in him, and then giving him space. Then when we know that it is something that he wants, we ask in faith because we know when we give him the space to be God, he will do it. He will do it. He wants us to ask for big things and see big answers. All right. We're running long, so we're going to wrap this bad boy up. Last point. He said, meaning it at the time. Josh, come on up. I'll have you play a little bit on the guitar here as we close. None of you got that preacher joke. Do you not believe me? This really is the last point. Forgiveness is an essential fruit of relationship with God. We talked a little bit about this. Not only will unforgiveness stop the answers to your prayers, it's likely that we're praying the wrong prayers already if there's unforgiveness in our heart. So I, w- I would say it's not that God just looks at you and says, oh, there's unforgiveness in your heart. I'm not going to answer your prayer. You're praying for the wrong things because your motives are messed up because there's unforgiveness in your heart. Unforgiveness warps the thinking and makes us prisoners. It shrinks our worldview and stunts our growth. And if we are unwilling to forgive, then we are not submitted to his lordship, which takes us out of the realm of being a disciple. An unsubmitted heart is not a place to ask God for anything. Now, this is not to say that we don't have some really valid hurts and wounds. It's not to make light of any situation in our life. Jesus never said that. But how you respond in the long run will drastically impact where you go in your life and what fruit you are able to bear. Forgiveness is a huge thing for the life of a disciple. And here we are back at the concept of fruit. The fruit that Jesus expects to find in our lives as disciples. One of those fruits is forgiveness. So to recap the the four points, Jesus expects our lives to bear fruit. Jesus is passionate about connecting people to the Father and will adamantly oppose anything that stops them. Number three, Jesus wants us to pray big prayers and see big answers. And four, forgiveness is an essential fruit of our relationship with God. We are a people of the word. As a church, we know the Bible, we study it, we live it, we memorize it so we can absorb it. 
Why? Because Paul says to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. This is what we need for life, is the word. So today as we hear this scripture, and there was a lot of it, let's allow our hearts to respond to what he's doing in us. If you would bow your heads with me and contemplate these questions. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak. When Jesus looks at our life today, does he see fruit? Is your heart humble and earnest in seeking him? Do your priorities move to reflect his? We all have a long ways to go in this area, but is the desire there to grow? Are you passionate about connecting people to the Father? This was Jesus' entire mission and life purpose, and now that of the church. So you could ask yourself, is my heart in this? Do you need to learn how to pray bigger prayers? God will do the impossible for you as you step out on mission with Jesus. Do you need to learn how to pray for big things, impossible things? Do you have unforgiveness inside you? Has the Holy Spirit been pointing at something in you that you know you got to deal with? You need to give up a debt that is owed you and remit it. There is freedom and growth on the other side of forgiveness. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Our hearts are open and honest with you, and we're not we're not putting on any masks or costumes here. Let your word cut us and then heal us, restore us. Lord, see our hearts today as we respond to your word. We are your disciples. We want to be like Jesus. Thank you that you don't just point at where we're wrong and then condemn us, but you lovingly teach and reprove and correct and train us. We're asking in earnest for you to change us and work in our hearts today. We mean it when we're asking you to change us. You are beautiful, Lord, and we want to be just like you. Thank you for this time, Lord. Holy Spirit, keep these things ruminating in our hearts. Keep the, the thoughts that are from you stuck in our minds, bugging us until we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.